Welcome to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Leonard Lopate. Agent Orange was used as a defoliant during the Vietnam War and caused serious health problems for both Vietnamese civilians and members of the U.S. military who came in contact with it. But did you know that it's also been used in this country with similarly devastating consequences? An eye-opening new documentary, The People vs. Agent Orange, chronicles the struggles of two heroic women, one Vietnamese, one American, who've spent much of their lives fighting for justice for the victims of this toxic chemical. The film opens virtually tomorrow, and I'm very pleased that it brings its co-director, Kate Taverna, to our show, along with one of her subjects, environmental activist Carol Van Strum. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Hello. <clears throat> Yeah, hi. Um, I want to keep this conversational, but I will, when necessary, address questions to you individually. Uh, Kate, didn't the U.S. stop using Agent Orange in Vietnam in 1972? Why did you and your co-director, Alan Adelson, want to make a film about it now? Um, well, the thing is, is that Alan was shown a bunch of pictures of very, very deformed and disabled children a fourth generation of Vietnamese victims of Agent Orange. And he was so shocked by that, he thought there has to be a reason for this. Why is this happening? And he's an, he was an investigative journalist, so he decided to go into that and start looking into why that was happening, why is now, it still happening. is it being passed on from generation to generation, or is the Agent Orange still there in the environment affecting people today, despite the fact that uh, its use was stopped 50 years ago? That's a very good question. We believe that it's probably still in the environment because dioxin, which is the contaminant in Agent Orange, has a, has a shelf life or a, an afterlife of, Carol can tell you more about this, of about uh, a, you know, more than a billion years. <laughs> and also it lodges in the fat of women's breasts. It is uh, teratogenetic, epigenetic, and it goes through generation after generation. That way, now, Carol, you know. Carol, you're a writer and environmental activist. How did you come to the story? Uh, through personal experience? Well, originally, yes, because the federal government, the U.S. Forest Service, when, when, when they stopped, weren't allowed or banned Agent Orange in Vietnam, all these com chemical companies, Monsanto, Dow, etc., they were, all their full production was going into producing Agent Orange for the military, and suddenly they had huge stocks on hand and vast equipment that they had built just to make it. So they promoted using it here, and not just the Forest Service was using it. Uh, rights of way, like uh, roadsides, it was used by road departments and Department of Transportation. It was used on... Um, railroad rights of way, but personally here we were we we live in a valley that um, is surrounded by ridges, and it's a lot of it's national forest. And wherever they had logged, the Forest Service started spraying with helicopters, and we immediately noticed 
drastic health effects in our children and on the wildlife and on our domestic animals. And that's how it all began. And this is in Oregon in the 1970s. Right. Um, were you farming there? You, you weren't planning to become an activist, were you? No, we came here to farm mostly and <laughs> raise children uh, away from cities. But, um, yeah, we came here to farm. And well, I, I want to I come back to that in, in a moment, but perhaps we should uh, backtrack a bit. Kate, uh, can we, uh, we should explain what Agent Orange is and discuss a bit of its history. Isn't it a combination of two different herbicides called 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T? Yes, yes, it is. It's those two components. And one of them, the 2,4-5-T, is where they were finding so much of this dioxin contaminant. So eventually, thanks to Carroll's group in Oregon, they got it to be that part of that chemical got banned, and they eventually deregistered it and... It's no longer being sold in this country, but the 2,4-D is still on the market everywhere. Now, was the dioxin just a natural consequence of the way it was formulated? Um, it was the, it was a consequence of it being cooked very on very high temperatures and very quickly in order to meet the demands of the U.S. military. They needed it quickly, they wanted it fast, and they wanted a lot of it, so... That was probably when it happened. So it wasn't being, uh, wasn't meant originally to be used as weed, weed killers in home gardens or in agriculture in this country. Uh, it was uh, always seen as, a, at least at first, as a chemical weapon? No, I think a 2,4-D had been in, in um, use since the 40s. Mm -hmm. In fact, I saw we use an industrial ad in the film from 1947 that shows 2,4-D applied to farm use and road use and things like that. It was mixed with this new 2,4-5-T uh, in the 60s, and they found and that it was a very effective, you know, weed killer. And it was used in Vietnam from 1961 to 1971 uh, in what the U.S. called Operation Ranch Hand. What was that? Um, Ranch hand was was from the Air Force. I'm sure that the, all the different various uh, forces, uh, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, everybody was using Agent Orange for one reason or another. But Operation Ranch hand was what our guy, Dr. James Clary, who wrote the report mm -hmm. on the effects of it, was called for the Air Force. In fact, he appears in the film. Um, yes. So... So was this the first time an herbicide or defoliant was used as a, a chemical weapon in warfare? Was was the idea to defoliate the forests and jungles of Vietnam to destroy the Viet Cong's cover and uh, and uh, and and by doing that destroy their their crops and also starve them? Well, it was used by the Brit by the British in Indonesia in the fifties, hmm. so there was a precedent for it. But the scale of this was much, much larger, went on for many more years, and blanketed the certain areas of the country, they say about the size of Connecticut or Massachusetts. Um, and yes, it was a two-tiered thing. It was supposed to destroy the cover that the insurgents would have coming in from the north, but it was also supposed to, to kill their food supply, the food chain, so that we'd be, and then put all the Vietnamese 
who were within those areas into small concentration camps of sort and feed them our stuff so that they wouldn't be affected by that. Mm. And what was it learned that it caused serious health problems in people? Um, well, scientists started Vietnam during the war to, dis, you know, to investigate this because they knew that this kind of thing was going to happen. They had, you know, an idea that it was not good for the environment nor for the people under it. And so, uh, and also the North Vietnamese were also doing studies of how people in Vietnam were being, um, were being affected by it. The Vietnamese themselves were saying they were being affected by it, but uh, the U.S. military wouldn't recognize those reports, and it took until Nixon for the scientists to get them to stop using it in 1971. They took it to LBJ, the, the scientists, I mean. They took it to LBJ, and he just blew them off, and they took it to Nixon finally, who stopped it. Because uh, they realized that it was causing cancer and birth defects, respiratory and neurological problems. So was it a matter of starving people might have been okay, but giving them cancer wasn't? <laughs> no, I, this is, I think ahead. a lot of it was the publicity built up mm -hmm. around it. Thanks to Thomas Whiteside's articles in The New Yorker in 1970, which led to Senator Hart's hearings, I think the following year, and it was after those hearings that it was banned in Vietnam. Because Whiteside's articles were devastating, mm -hmm. showing what was going on over there and the birth defects, the, the, the cancers wouldn't have developed yet, but um, even in the wildlife, there was enough evidence right there on the ground for for anyone with a brain to notice. Interestingly, in the film, a scientist from Dow Chemical, one of the main manufacturers of Agent Orange, says that the components are as toxic as aspirin. Was he <laughs> saying that it's basically safe? Well, well, they've been saying that for years, and they continue to say it about everything they manufacture. So, um, you know, that's kind of like the used car salesman telling you this car is in perfect shape. <laughs> Are they still manufacturing it? They're making, they're still making 2,4-D, hmm. and 2,4-D has its own history of dioxin contamination and trying to get the information out of the EPA about how much is in 2,4-D. Uh, I tried... Freedom of Information Act requests on that score and got four boxes of blank paper stamped confidential business information. So, so, could, so could Agent Orange have been made more safely so that it killed only plants but not humans? What, no. It didn't have any effect on humans? No. And in fact, almost all herbicides have an effect on humans because they're affecting the same plant. The, Plants use the same mechanisms for growth and health that people do. It's just that we use them in different parts of our body or different functions, but it's very similar. So that's why Roundup has become a uh, controversial, a controversy now. Well, absolutely. And then it turned out that most of the uh, so-called safety tests on Roundup, 2,4-D, all those things were fraudulent. So... Um, 
and the government knew that by the mid-'70s. So, so, but they continued to register. The EPA, to this day, registers those same chemicals. So what happened? Go ahead, finish. Oh, they just changed their their qualifications for registration of a chemical so that instead of a manufacturer submitting the whole study, like raw data, what actually happened, the manufacturers can just send EPA a summary, and they write it themselves, and it's always glowing. And, uh, you know, the whole, the whole system is a fraud, put it that way. It really is. So what happened to the quantities of Agent Orange that were already in existence when the U.S. military stopped using it in Vietnam? Well, some of um, was it, it just repurposed? Well, some was. Some of it was used right here in Oregon in the Sayuswa National Forest, which is where I live. And um, some, a, a good hunk of it was ultimately shipped out to sea and burned on a special ship, incinerator ship. Uh, the idea being, yeah, that it's going to produce a lot more dioxin when you burn it, but it'll all land in the ocean and who cares? And the rest, I'm not sure. There was a lot of it stored down in Gulfport, Mississippi, but I don't, I'm not sure what happened to it all. Do you know, Kate? I mean, dropping it into the ocean isn't necessarily the best idea. There are living creatures there. Of course. <laughs> and we eat them. <laughs> My guests are Kate Taverna, who is the co-director of a new film called The People vs. Agent Orange, and one of the people featured in the film, Carol Van Strum. This is Letters Located at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that it it, uh, it opens virtually tomorrow. What does that mean, Kate? Um, it's very exciting. It's going to be across the country. We have about 17 states lined up in about 37 different venues. And um, people can go to their local, uh, the website of their local or favorite theater because we're trying to support theaters. And um, also there's about five of them in New York in the state of New York. And so you go to the theater, you can go to our website at, uh, at www.peopleversusagentorange.com and there'll be a list under the screenings tab that tells you all the different venues all over the place and you can pick any one and uh, buy your ticket through our website that will credit the theater. So it's a way of supporting the local theaters that have been closed because of COVID. Mm. Carol, let's get back to your situation, and then we'll go to Vietnam in a little while. Uh, you you say that you were living uh, near the national forest, uh, and and logging was going on there. Is, is it was this just happening in Oregon, or was it happening throughout uh, states that had forests? Well, pretty much throughout at least the western states: Idaho, mm -hmm. Washington, Northern California, where they had where they practiced huge clear-cutting, which is basically strip-mining a whole area of forest and starting over with the planting of only one kind of tree because there's they only wanted the commercial trees, the Douglas fir, 
and that's what led to the problem. Because once you have a monoculture, you're going to have other things wanting to grow there too, and that's why they sprayed them. And uh, the so these private timber companies were allowed to clear cut areas of forest, and you and were allowed to use Agent Orange as part of the process. Well, yeah, well, the Forest Service was the one using the Agent Orange, but the private timber companies would contract with the Forest Service to come in and log X number of acres in an area. And at that time, there were huge, huge clear cuts in the national forest here. And and then the, the obligation fell on the logging company, the timber company, to replant and... That's where the herbicides came in. Hmm. But it was the Forest Service themselves that were spraying most of the areas. But can things grow in an area that's been sprayed with Agent Orange <laughs> since it's a defoliant? Oh, yeah. Um, but it, a lot of what grows after Agent Orange is like noxious weeds, things hmm. you don't really want. Um, and the healthy trees like alders that fix nitrogen and as well as Douglas fir, and then the, you know, the cedars, the hemlocks. If they grow at all, they're stunted. They sometimes, like there's whole places that were sprayed and replanted, and the trees now are 40 years old, but they're never going to be good timber because they got warped when they were sprayed when they were young. So some of them have multiple stems, and some of them have twisted stems that don't make good lumber. So it turned out not to be a good idea. Would, were you and other local residents notified that it was going to be used and warned to avoid the, the no, spraying areas? Not then. No, there was no notification. And suddenly these spray helicopters would appear, and they were very cavalier about going right over private property, too. And so a lot of the residents around here thought, oh, well, they're spraying for mosquitoes, or no one knew what they were spraying. And it wasn't until we found out what they were spraying that people got alarmed and got together and swapped stories and realized how much they were being affected. People were getting sick from it? People were getting sick. Women were having miscarriages. Uh, there were several babies born without brains. That, and and livestock, very similarly. We had chickens and ducks hatched with their feet on backwards or no wings. I mean, yeah. it, it was very noticeable that something weird was going on. And There were birth uh, defects hunters, in babies. Hunt, yeah, and hunters and loggers were finding aborted fetuses of deer and elk in the forest. Mm. Um, there were a lot of, it, but no one put it all together until the people in our valley got together and realized they weren't alone, that everybody was going through this. But Kate, shouldn't uh, we have been aware that of, of what might have happened because of what had already gone on in Vietnam? Sure, we should have been made aware, but we weren't made aware. Um, Carol had to go to court and fight for that. She had to, she'd tell him, Carol, about the, the yeah. court 
Yeah, yeah we, we did. Were you organized with other residents in the area and formed a group called CATS? Right. Citizens what does CATS stand for? Toxic sprays. And, yeah, that was... The, first, we met numerous times with the Forest Service and tried to tell them, hey, this is not good. You know, you're, you're hurting people, you're hurting the livestock, and you're hurting the wildlife. And the Forest Service just insisted, just like that Dow guy, that, oh, no, it's safe as table salt. It's as safe as aspirin. And so we, we actually went around to a number of different lawyers trying to find someone that would help. None of us had any money, put it that way. And found a lawyer, Bruce Anderson, who amazingly took our case for half his usual fee and let us if we would do the research for the lawsuit, and we did win an injunction against the Forest Service use of 245T, and one of the bases for the judge's decision was that the Forest Service had not included any information about the effects of the same chemical in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So, so you sued you sued the Forest Service, but not the logging companies or the manufacturers right. of the chemicals. Why not? Well, we interestingly, we there was no point in suing the logging companies because they weren't actually doing the spraying. It was the Forest Service. Hmm. Um, but the chemical companies, I believe Dow and maybe Monsanto too, tried to intervene in the lawsuit, but the judge didn't allow them to. Didn't you attract the attention of the government because of your activism? And when I say the government, uh, was that the U.S. government or all state governments as well? Well, it definitely attracted the federal government because I think they hadn't, <coughs> they hadn't had just groups of nobodies ever filing lawsuits against them before. And they didn't take us very seriously at first. But um, ultimately, they had to because the judge ruled in our favor. Uh, and uh, at the same time, you were subjected to surveillance, weren't you? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the, our lawyer warned us about phone taps, and our local phone company even told us there were... I mean, no one ever identified who was doing the phone tapping. But, yeah, we were followed on the road, and I found... A crew of Dow Chemical people on my property with film equipment and sound equipment. And uh, so, yeah, there were numerous incidents showing that we were being kept an eye on. And was anyone ever arrested? No. Hmm. Well, I guess that's positive. What's Later the... on, people were arrested for being for trying to stop the spraying by putting their bodies on the places mm. that were going to be sprayed, and some of them were in fact sprayed, Ooh. and then stayed with that spray in their clothing for six hours by the police who brought them in. And now we found out recently that one of the women who was sprayed at that time is in a nursing home, suffering from severe Parkinson's disease. And she can hardly speak or talk or do anything. And she's, like, not very old. She's in her 40s or early 50s. She was a victim of that spraying. Yeah, and another victim of the same spraying 
was a woman who developed a very rare blood disease and um, that the doctors attributed to that sprain. But there were the, the possibility of, like, suing the chemical companies was pretty low because mm-hmm. their whole policy was to drag any lawsuit out until the plaintiffs were dead. And that's literally been actually said on a few occasions by them. So. Right. So it's happening to our other character, Trontonia, in France. Right. She's been which which, we will, which I, Can we put that off until we take a little break and then oh, we'll I'm talk sorry. about what... It's okay. I just want to finish up on the United States before we uh, go back to Vietnam. Uh, in uh, Well, there, there were people who were having miscarriages and there were birth defects. Uh, didn't those people sue? No, not you. You have to realize it costs a lot of money to file a lawsuit, and that's something else the chemical mm. companies are really good at is running up your your legal bills until you can't afford to continue the lawsuit, and um, so it's very very expensive, and very few lawyers will take it on because they they're looking at years and years of litigation without mm. any compensation unless they win. So it's um, it's it's a pretty bad situation for plaintiffs in this case. In a case like this, there was a big case. This happened a little later. This was in Sturgeon, Mississippi, or Missouri. I think it was Missouri. Sturgeon, Missouri. A whole town was poisoned by a railroad car full of orthochlorophenol that Monsanto had manufactured and was shipping to a place in California that made wood preservatives. And Monsanto claimed at the time, oh, it's, again, safe as table salt, and said it had no dioxin in it. But then when uh, the town and the people in it got samples taken, it was very high in dioxin. So those folks did sue Monsanto, and it was one of the longest, Civil cases ever brought. It went on for years and years. Monsanto did everything possible to <laughs> drag it out. And the people finally won an amazing jury verdict of, it was a huge verdict, I can't remember how much it was, but it was in the millions. And um, then Monsanto appealed it, and the jury's decision was rejected. So oh boy. nothing... Yeah, I know. It was absolutely tragic because these people's yards, their water, everything was poisoned. What, what's the Poison Papers Project? Well, the, okay, there were cases like that Sturgeon case. By the that, way, Sturgeon is Missouri. Okay, yeah. good. So I guess uh, a listener looked it up. Oh, good. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, but other cases too. There was a case. There were the Vietnamese, not I mean the Vietnam veterans had cases going. There were people in Canada who were also suing the Canadian government for using these chemicals. There were cases of individual, like there was a a man who actually sprayed the chemicals for the Forest Service and died of I think non Hodgkin's lymphoma. So. They had individual cases or separate cases, but none of, and they were getting incredible, like, 
documents out of discovery, but none of them were putting them together with everybody else. And since I was working on some of those cases, I got all the discovery, and I had it all stored here in the barn, and rats <laughs> were getting into it, and it was everything was not good. The barn started leaking, and so we decided to scan everything and get it up where anybody could have access. And are lawyers using it in, in other lawsuits? As far as I know, they are, because there's some really amazing... It's hard to find anything but on, on the poison papers, but then the um, Columbia University took over the project as we added to it, and they're, they're getting it much more organized so it's easier to find things. And their website is called Toxic Docs. <laughs> so if anybody wants to look for them. Um, but that was the Poison Papers project, was getting all, I mean, 200,000 pages or something scanned and uploaded so that anybody had access. And you also wrote a book called Bitter Fog, Herbicides and Human Rights, about your struggle to end the spraying. Um, now, you, you said earlier that you had no... You had no expectations uh, when you moved to Oregon of becoming an environmental activist, but um, obviously they've changed the course of your life, but are you still living on the farm? I still am, yes. And is it okay now? Well, as far as I know, um, we were kind of lucky in that what little, I mean, all we got really was the drift from the spraying. Other people got sprayed directly over their farms and their property. And then the road department was also using the components of Agent Orange and spraying like they sprayed the roadside right through our place. But um, we stopped seeing any of the birth defects and stuff after maybe after five or ten years. I can't even put a date to it but i haven't seen anything obvious since then and some of the birds and animals that disappeared during that time probably because they're either they died or or their you know their habitat was destroyed and they are coming back the peregrine falcons uh have come back we've we have some ospreys coming back the eagles have come back and my favorite birds of all, the dippers that hang out in the river and swim and walk underwater, they've come back. So I think slowly things are recovering. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, the Army tried some fancy stuff to bring them to their knees Like Agent Orange defoliants to kill the brush and trees We'd hike all day on jungle trails through clouds of poison spray And they never told me then that it would hurt my health today But I got the news this morning We are, are back with our guest, Kate Taverna, who is the uh, 
the one of the uh, filmmakers, the co-director of a new film called The People Versus Agent Orange, and also Carol Van Strum, who is an environmental activist and one of the people featured in the film. Okay, Kate, uh, let's talk about uh, Tran To, is it Nya, N-G-A? Nya. Yeah. She's the, the, uh, the, the other main subject of uh, the, the, your film. Yeah. What's One her story? Courageous women. She is suing all the chemical companies who who made Agent Orange during the war in a small court in outside of Paris in every France. And um, it's she. They submitted her case in 2014, and for the last seven years now, they've been going through procedural hearings, and they've been postponing them and pushing back, and every one of them takes months to come to, and then they postpone again in the same way that Carol described as waiting for a victim to die, waiting for a, pla- mm-hmm. a plaintiff to die. But um, Tron insists that she is going to live through it all, even though now she has cancer and she is suffering from diabetes type 2 and has different kinds of nodules all over her inside of her body, all kinds Mm. of dioxin is showing up in her. And in her children and in her grandchildren, they have illnesses that are related to her. Didn't two of her daughters die? No, one, her firstborn died at 18 months Mm. um, because that's... She got. She was pregnant right after she got exposed twice, and then when her daughter was born, she had all kinds of issues. She wasn't growing. She could hardly breathe, and she had some kind of um, problem with her heart uh, that huh. was unusual and fatal. And she died at 18 months. And who's so she suing herself? Who's she who's suing? She? And and why in France? Um, well, she is a French citizen because she got um, she got the um, Legion of Honor for her work with uh, a lia- as a liaison between Vietnam and France by bringing in uh, former soldiers, French soldiers, back to Vietnam to tour the country and establish a kind of like reengagement with a former enemy and colonizer. So they gave her this Legion of Honor, and that made her, it gave her the option of becoming a citizen of France. And so that also made it possible to qualify her for this lawsuit. So when she appeared in front of a tribunal in 2009, she was discovered by William Bourdon and André Bouny. William Bourdon is a human rights lawyer in France, and they presented her with this possibility of suing the chemical companies for damages to her and her family. Around 20 million gallons of Agent Orange were dropped on Vietnam during the war. Is there any estimate uh, of how many people were sickened by it? Well, the the numbers vary according to who you you talk to or where you get your information from. But um, I think the Red Cross has it up to almost 4 million people. Hmm. Uh, and there's still all of these hundreds of thousands, if not more, of children. Uh, uh, says millions of children who are still being born or victimized by the, the disabilities and deformations that they have from from the exposure or from getting it from their parents. You show a facility in your film where deformed children are being cared for. Many of them were born without hands or legs or with deformed facial features. And, and those birth defects can be traced directly back 
to the use of Agent Orange in the 60s and into the 70s? Yes, I believe so. I mean, the, the chemical companies will say this is only anecdotal evidence, but um, it, I don't know how anecdotal can, it can be when it's going epigenically through generation after generation. In fact, a, a man who spoke in one of the panels that we've had after one of our screenings, Professor Michael Skinner, um, he's out in the state of Washington, he spoke about a study that he's been doing for many, many years um, about this notion of toxic exposure by our grandparents or on our grandparents could affect us and our children after us, this epigenetic possible, it's a susceptibility to disease that one gets when your parents or your grandparents have been exposed to toxins. You said that the case... Go ahead. I just want to add something there, which is that Dow Chemical did three generation studies of dioxins effects on multiple generations of, of rats and maybe mice too, and, and found that even very, very small amounts of dioxin were causing multi-generational effects. So they were carried on from one generation to the next, even though the youngest, the newest ones had never been directly exposed, they were still being affected by their great-grandparents, their parents, everybody. Got into but the they, DNA? And they knew that, and they kept those studies secret because, of course, they didn't want other people to see them. And mm. it wasn't until, oh, the late 70s probably, that uh, they were finally forced to make them public. Well, there have been lots of lawsuits, Kate, in the film we hear from lawyers involved in, in the, uh, the French case and in other cases involving Agent Orange. Um, how, do we know how many lawsuits have been filed over the years and, and the results? Have any, of, have, um, have any of them been won? Have any of them been won? Well, it's, it's not really won when it's a settlement uh, the very famous and largest civil case at the time was the vets, the veterans of the Vietnam War who sued the chemical companies. Um, we thought it was important to show that aspect of the story because our own people had been affected by this poisoning. And um, the settlement for them didn't cover everybody who continues to get sick. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there's no more money left in that so-called account to pay for any continuing uh, illnesses on soldiers. But, and their children, it certainly doesn't cover their children or their grandchildren who are also having those same epigenetic effects. And then when Jonathan Moore, another of our characters, brought on the, um, the Vietnamese victims case in 2004 in front of the same judge who found the $180 million settlement for the veterans, name um, was Weinstein, Judge Weinstein, Jack Weinstein. Um, they basically were thrown out and dismissed because that settlement was basically understood to be the final time that the chemical companies could be uh, sued on the issue of their Agent Orange production. Oh well, ironically, this... Uh chemical agent that was uh, meant to uh, win a war in Vietnam uh, has uh, had a terrible effect in Vietnam, but it's also had a terrible effect in the country that developed it. That's right. 
And the irony is that, just like Carol said, that the effect on, on the land there and the trees there has not worked. It has not been a successful uh, way of dealing with agriculture there. In, in Vietnam, after they sprayed and decimated over the nine or ten years of the spraying, all of the magnificent trees, the mangrove trees, of which would have been a source of great wealth to the Vietnamese today, but they were all decimated. And in their place, the, 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 the sunlight hit the ground, and all these bamboo kind of brush came up, and what the Vietnamese call American grass has come up, and that succeeded in hiding the, uh, the encroaching enemy coming down through the Ho Chi Minh Trail. That covered them just as well, so it wasn't really the answer. The technology did not work. It only you, backfired. Go ahead. You mentioned uh, a military scientist, Dr. James Clarey, Clary, Clary, who, yes. who worked for the Air Force during the Vietnam War. What was his role during the war? Well, it's interesting. He told us that he was. Uh, he also designed the spray tanks for for the planes and the helicopters when they realized what they were using for agricultural purposes didn't deliver as much as they needed to deliver over a large area. But then he was assigned to write a report in 1971, to go back and write a report about the effectiveness of the Ranch Hand program. So he went all around the country and met with various people and really took a close look at it and wrote a report and was a whistleblower of sorts because they buried his report for a good 35 years. So his warnings were totally ignored? Yeah, I, I guess you could say that. They weren't just Until ignored, they were covered up. And, <laughs> pardon? I'm sorry, Carol. Oh, no, I was just saying they weren't just ignored. They were covered up and actively <laughs> concealed from any from the public. Mm. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, we're talking about a film called The, uh, the People vs. Agent Orange, which uh, opens tomorrow, both in theaters and uh, also uh, virtually. And uh, my guests are Kate Taverna, who is the co-director of the film, and Carol Van Strum, an environmental activist who's featured in the film. Uh, th there's um, a young man in your film, Kate, uh, Daryl Ivey, who worked for one of the helicopter spraying, uh, spraying companies. Um, was his health affected by exposure to Agent Orange? Yes, you see it happening, Leonard, during the course of the film. He was my 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 present. I wanted to show that it was still going on, and that even if it was an Agent Orange or whatever it was he was spraying mixed with 2,4-D, he was getting sick and throwing up blood by the end of the film. So he was someone that I needed to get into the film. Well, from this conversation, I'm getting the feeling that the story doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, a lot of things have been left hanging. A lot of people who've been affected have not really um, been helped as uh, by by the courts or uh, by our government. So, what is the current situation? Uh, you want to start, Carol? Sure. The current situation is that the federal government has largely stopped 
well, they've stopped a lot, most of their clear-cutting, so the need for spraying poisons on the, on the clear-cuts is almost reduced to nothing. But in their place, the private timber companies and the state forestry department have pretty much taken over the whole issue of both clear-cutting and spraying, and that's why Daryl Ivey... Was cur- that's it was just a year or two ago that that happened to him, and they're spraying vast areas, huge clear cuts of private timber company lands, primarily, and some state mm-hmm. forest lands. And so you could so, do it if it's in your private, if it's private property, as long as it right. isn't public property. That's right, and 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 they've. The, the legislature has backed them up again and again when people have tried to stop it, and it still goes on. Our 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 county voters even voted through a ban on aerial spraying of any poisons. Um, that was in I think 2017 or 18, and for two years it stood. But the again the chemical companies and the timber companies managed to get it overturned and that's currently on appeal but because local people don't have any power anymore when it comes to protecting their own health and safety uh, and they leave it up to state governments that are pretty much bought and paid for by big industries so that's where things are right now is that they're still using 24D now they've added Roundup glyphosate to their arsenal, chemicals like atrazine that are known to reverse the the gender of amphibians and other animals. I mean, I go the list goes on and on. The whole well, the point Roundup is, has been heard in the courts. Uh, at the same time, uh, every so often you see a commercial on television. That's right. They're still using it. I mean. You can walk into any like garden supply store. Some of them are not carrying it anymore, or, but yeah, it's right there on the shelf. Anybody can buy it, and they're nuts if they do, but they don't know that. What about in other parts of the world? Uh, there has been a lot of controversy about the Brazilian government's clear-cutting uh, forests in the Amazon, uh, and then there are some Asian countries where similar things have happened. Are they using Agent Orange or are they using other things? I believe they're still using 2,4-D. Mm. They're not using the mixture with 2,4-5-T because that's not being manufactured anywhere anymore. But um, yeah, they're using a whole arsenal just like the Oregon timber companies. Uh, You know, atrazine, glyphosate, Roundup and uh but there is some hope, though, No, now, isn't there, Carol? There's hope. Apparently, Tran is going to be meeting with a group of people uh, about stopping ecocide. They'd like to sort of code ecocide as a crime against humanity at The Hague, and that's going to be happening in April of this year. The destruction of forests has a negative effect on on uh, our on global warming, doesn't it? So, uh, <laughs> ha- hasn't that argument held any sway? Well, not much because there, you know, take a look at who's backing the whole um, anti 
uh, anti-global warming, and you'll find that a lot of them are these huge extractive industries that couldn't get away with it if it was known that they did contribute to global warming. And definitely our forests are the last hope of combating global warming, but... They create oxygen. Yes, they create oxygen. They they store. eat up the the carbon dioxide and, and they create oxygen. Exactly, exactly, and and they uh, they have so many other benefits. They hold the soil, they protect the soil. A lot of them fix nitrogen in the soil, and it feeds other forests. You know, other trees in the forest. It, it's so insane to be killing off our forests that it, it's very hard to, to even comprehend that anybody would support doing so, but they do. Are you still engaged? Money. Are you still engaged in anti-Agent Orange activism? Is there, in fact, is there much to fight these days? Well, I've been engaged with our county, with the county group that won the, the voter ban on aerial spraying, and that was of all poisons. So that would include Roundup, glyphosate, atrazine, 2,4-D, um, and for two years, they couldn't spray, and you know what? It's amazing. The forest did not die. <laughs> Industry tells the most incredible lies. You know, they said, oh, 22,000 jobs are going to be lost if 245T is banned, and they were saying that all these jobs would be lost if they couldn't spray the the watershed and water supplies of whole cities here. I mean, uh, they get away with it because they get legislators in place that will not support the people and are there only to represent industry. Well, Kate, your film is very effective, uh, I think, and very convincing. So other than the general public, uh, have you uh, been trying to get... Uh, people who make the decisions that affect our lives to see the film? Well, that'll be happening next, hmm. I'm hoping. Um, but I, there's also hope that on May 10th, when the final decision comes from the judges in every Fertron's case, that something will happen there as well. And if it doesn't, it'll be appealed. So the struggle goes on. Well, I can't imagine that uh, that French courts would be as uh, supportive of uh, of American uh, chemical manufacturers than uh, some of the the judges in America. Well, they're all well. You see, there was that whole it. It was a political decision in this country. They, it's less. They don't. I don't think the French are tied to that kind of argument. I think they're. It's if it's also if it's considered a, a crime against humanity, and an ecocide that could affect the world mm -hmm. globally and the use of these things globally, yeah. which would be fantastic. Um, Has it ever been discussed at the UN? Oh, I'm sure it's been discussed at the UN, yeah. but I wasn't there, so I don't have that in the film. Um, Anyway, okay, we, uh, we, I mentioned, you said it'll be showing in some theaters. Uh, do you know about any theaters in the local New York area? And uh, will it be available uh, on, on television as well? 
Um, it's, it's going to be in Pelham, New York at the Picture House, the new Plaza in Lincoln Center, the Plaza Cinema in Patchogue, the Downing Center in Newburgh, Bedford Playhouse in Bedford, and eventually in Maisel's Documentary Center. Uh, after the 17th, but it keeps spreading, and um, all of these these places in New York will allow people to view it in the tri-state area or from beyond, so it, it's all virtual. You don't have to go to the theater. You can order it online at our website, thepeopleversusagentorange.com. And do you have any other projects in the works? Um, no, not at this very moment, but um, this is taking up all of our time right now. It's very exciting. This is a big launch. And eventually it will get on television, on public television, but not till the end of the, till the end of June. Well, it's a very effective film, and I'm very pleased that the two of you could join me today on my show. Kate Taverna, who is co-director of The People vs. Agent Orange, and Carol Van Strum, who is one of the uh, subjects of the film, an environmental activist in Oregon. Thank you both so much. Well, thank, thank you. you. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn for prepare, preparing today's interview. If you are new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com. If you would like to comment on any of our shows, if you just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes to ask you to support BAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with to this historic free speech radio station, the only one in New York radio that's completely listener-sponsored. And you can do that by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique, in-depth, long-form interviews you won't hear on any other station coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. So why not make that call now in the name of Leonard Lopate at large? And again, the number to call? 516-620-3602, or you can go to give to WBAI.org on the web. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support this program and the station during this terrible pandemic, we thank you very much. And we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when activist filmmaker Celine Cousteau will discuss her new documentary, Tribes on the Edge, about the crises in the Brazilian Amazon. We'll see you then.